Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Jared Barron, chairman and CEO of The Metals Company. Now, The Metals Company, as the name implies, they are working in metals. But I'm going to let Jared explain everything else because he is going to do a much better job than me. So, Jared Thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please give me in the audience your background and an introduction to The Metals Company. Well, great to be here, Joe. Thank you. So The Metals Company is focused on securing a supply of battery metals that we are going to need a lot more of for the transition away from fossil fuels. But we're focused on recovering them from deep in the ocean uh, in the form of these polymetallic nodules. And... They, we have a, a license area in international waters around 1,000 miles off the Mexico coast in the Pacific Ocean in an area known as the clarion Clipperton Zone. And on two of our license blocks, we have identified 1.6 billion tons of these polymetallic nodules. And that's enough to build around 280 million electric vehicle mid-sized batteries or in another metric, it's enough to electrify the entire light transport fleet in the USA. My own background, I have been an entrepreneur since since my university days and building, I was making batteries in China in the early 90s and um, exporting them uh, to Europe and to Australia. Uh, Built a software as a service company, which I grew to 30 countries and and was originally the investor behind the metals company. And I took over as chairman and CEO in 2017 when we decided it needed to take a a different path. And here we are today. Yeah, very cool. I'm going to turn you down just a touch and make a note of that time for the editors. Okay. So that's a very interesting background. Typically, when, when I talk to people, going from building a battery manufacturing company and exporter usually leads into more manufacturing. Sometimes you go upstream or downstream of that, but going from that into software as a service and then into mining, it's a, it's a unique uh, path. I'm curious, just quickly, how did you go from manufacturing batteries to a SaaS solution now into mining? Well, I've always been curious and I've always been interested in evolving technology, you know, as, uh, and I think the metals company is, a, is probably my best example, but, you know, as I originally, I started as the investor and then in 2013 and 14, 
uh, I started the, the, the company was founded by a very um, a mate of mine. But in 13, 14, I really started to dive into um, the data behind climate change. And I started to piece together the fact that if we were going to transition, it was going to be very metal intensive. And, and then you start diving into, well, where are the metals going to come from and what are the impacts if we increase extractive industries? And, and as many of you will know, the International Energy Agency expects that we'll need to increase extractive industries by 5 to 600% per annum between now and 2040. So, mm-hmm. And last year, there was 190 billion tons of waste generated by the mining industry. And to put that in context, municipal waste globally is 2 billion tons. So you take 190 billion tons and multiply it by five, you get a big problem on your hands annually. And so what I started to realize is that this industry was going to play a really vital part in the clean transition. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have some success in my business career. And, you know, I was at that stage in life where I really wanted to do something impactful and I wanted to, to identify a tough challenge to do. And oh my goodness, I, I, I picked that right. This is, this is a project filled with challenges and some would say impossibilities. But I've got to say, in the time that I've taken over running the business since 2017, you know, we have just made amazing progress. I've assembled a, a world-class team. And we're in the process of preparing our final application to move from exploration to exploitation, which will be ready to lodge by the end of this year. We've already secured our first production vessel, uh, which we were out trialing on our license area last year. Uh, we've, we will soon announce where we're going to process our nodules. And of course, while all of this has been happening, the focus on geopolitics about where do metals come from, like who controls mm-hmm. them. And we know that when it comes to battery metals, China is OPEC. They dominate the space. And so we're also starting to focus on the true environmental impact of mining. Mm. And it's an uncomfortable truth. And yeah. so there has to be a better way. And so, you know, this ticks all the boxes. Yeah. So I'd like to, to dig into that more. Let's start with uh, the first step of thinking large picture we've we've talked about what these nodules are from a large perspective presumably critical minerals what specific minerals are in there is this one part of the supply chain or do these nodules actually have are they essentially like naturally made batteries that just need a little refining well it's uncanny how aligned the mixture of metals are with the EV industry. And we talk about EVs a lot in our company, but of course, these metals are used in the fabric of society as well. Uh, 50% of the revenue comes from nickel. So, um, in fact, two of our license blocks have been voted world's largest and world's second largest undeveloped nickel projects on the planet. Um, but the metal mixture is nickel, copper, which we know we need a lot more of, cobalt, which of course comes with terrible human rights uh, problems, and manganese. Now, if I look at America, America is a net importer of nearly all of its manganese, um, most of its nickel and cobalt. And of course, it does have some copper deposits, but it is an importer of copper as well. And so the mixture is just so on the money 
for the world that we find ourselves in today. Yeah. Now, noticeably, lithium was not in that list. We do have small amounts of lithium, but we don't recover it when we process it. Hmm. So maybe that is a another opportunity for some other company. Yeah, who there's can a come lot of in. lithium on the planet, right? Like yeah. The, the problem is um, it just hasn't had all the capital. But if you if you talk to some of the major mining company CEOs, they're not going after lithium because they see it's going to be a a market that will level out once the capital leads to the production that increases the supply. So in five years' time, I think the lithium problem will be solved. But nickel, not so easy, because all of the growth in nickel is coming from equatorial rainforests. And they're the most biodiverse carbon sinks on our planet. So to get to these nickel laterite deposits, first you need to move away the indigenous communities. By the Mm. way, they don't get asked. They just get moved and encroached Mm. upon. Then you need to tear down the rainforest. And of course, they are our carbon sinks. They are full of unique species, particularly in Indonesia, which is in the Wallacea area. Then you need to remove all the topsoil to get to this metal-bearing ore. Now, if you're not so responsible, if you expose this nickel laterite material to weather, the runoff is chromium-6+. And if you've seen mm. the Aaron Brockovich movie you know that chromium-6 plus is nasty. And of course, that's all being leaked into water supplies, uh, into rivers, into oceans. And so these activities are having just a tremendous impact on environments and on the people that depend on those environments. Yeah. So it sounds like the, it's kind of like lithium is going to be figured out, but nickel, and some have said cobalt with with the amount of, of human rights issues surrounding cobalt mining, those are kind of going to be the, the bottlenecks for the EV industry and our, our movement towards electrification. Yes. Now, so that's helpful for us to understand what's actually in these deposits. And these deposits are on the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. How, how do these actually form why are they on the ocean floor and thinking long term? Is there anywhere else where we'd be able to find these kind of deposits? Mm. Well, how they form is, is really helpful. They precipitate the metals that are in the seawater or the sediment upon which they sit. And <clears throat> think of it as a big iron exchange cleansing the oceans of these metals and so they and they continue to form and so they have no deleterious elements that's the good news so it means that when we bring them to shore and process them we don't generate any waste or any tailings and that's a game changer like I said before and so other oceans also have these nodules but they just don't contain the nickel and the copper And in fact, in many cases, they're just uneconomic to recover. And the reason why ours are rich in nickel and copper is because, uh, as I mentioned, we're a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. And so to the east are the Rockies and Andes, and they were covered in nickel and copper, and they um, both eroded and through volcanogenic activity spewed these metals into the Pacific Ocean. And you had currents from the north and south, and they met at this fracture zone and headed west. 
and that's the belt where these nodules form. And mm. so it's, uh, you know, and, and, and thankfully, if you believe in circularity, which we do, then extractive industries in the future will slow down. There's no doubt about that. But they'll only slow down when we can inject enough metals into the system that can be recycled in the future. And that's what, that was the purpose when I sat down and, and looked at our strategy for the metals company. It was like, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? The problem is where can we get the metals that we need for the transition with the lightest planetary touch from an environmental perspective and from a human perspective? And then it's make sure we get those metals into the system and they stay there. So we, we, we make sure that every single atom is recycled. And then finally, when we're not extracting these metals anymore, which I believe will be the case in 30, 40, 50 years' time, that we can dedicate our onshore processing facilities to recycling other metals. And so that's our master plan. Okay. Very interesting. I, I wanna, I'm going to make a note to come back to that for that future-looking plan. But I want to get into the process of mining. You've, you've pointed out that this process that, that you're looking at, because of the resource itself, the nodules, there's going to be very little tailings or very little waste mm -hmm. compared to the, the 190 billion tons of waste mm -hmm. that you said previously. Now, when I think of, of ocean floor mining, the only thing that I can compare to is is um, that show from the Discovery Channel, Gold Rush. <laughs> and they would have those, those dredges mm. offshore in Nome, Alaska, mm. and you're sitting there vacuuming up the ocean floor and then pulling out the, the gold. Mm. And in some regards, that feels like a pretty, in some ways that seems like a pretty disruptive process. I agree. What is the difference between that, which looks like a, a dredging, vacuuming kind of operation versus what, what you and the metals company are doing? Well, you've hit on one of the communication challenges that we face. Because if what we were suggesting was taking land-based mining practices and putting them into the ocean, there's no way on this earth I would be associated with that, nor would <laughs> any of my team, because they're not great. Yep. But we're lucky that this resource affords us just some very unique characteristics. Firstly, these nodules, think of them as potatoes. You know, that's the size of them. And they just lie on the ocean floor. And so our job is to collect them with the lightest impact and the greatest efficiency. So 50 years ago, they did start to extract these industries and the technology was built. It was pioneering stuff. You had Lockheed Martin and BP, Shell, Mitsubishi were all involved. And of course, the reason why that industry came to a halt was because 50 years ago, the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. Mm. That was resolved when UNCLOS was agreed and signed in 1982. That set the boundaries of where your borders begin and end. But something else happened in that 50 years, and that was the development of the offshore industry. Oil and gas expanded. The technology available was, became ex expansive. And so when we went to 
design our collector system, it was a whole lot, lot easier than those pioneers who launched the collectors back in the 1970s. And we went one step better. We said, look, as a company, for us to go and do that ourselves, there'll be a lot of mistakes made. So we went looking for a partner and we were lucky to find an amazing company uh, by the name of Allseas, who have for the last 37 years been a, a world leader in laying pipes in the deep ocean for the oil and gas industry. And Allseas is owned by uh, Edward Herrimer, who is an engineer and a, a brilliant engineer, who wanted, who was fascinated by the challenge. And so when I met him, he'd already had a project on the side investigating this. And so it was a perfect match because they had this tremendous operational experience that they could bring to uh, help solve our problem. And that all came to a culmination last year when we, for four months, were out on our license area collecting nodules. And, and the basic premise is that we put a robot on the seafloor. It has tracks, a little bit like a, uh, a snowplow. It, it, um, it crawls along the ocean floor. And using an engineering principle known as the Coanda effect, which sprays a a jet of fluid of water at the nodules and as the curvature of the collector head moves, it lifts the nodules. So we don't go down and scour the ocean floor, we lift them and we're very fortunate that the resource sits on top of the seafloor. So we don't have to drill or dig to find them. And that minimizes the impact. And so what we then do is we separate the nodules from the sediment in the robot and then we put them into an air riser which uses water and with compressed air injected at about a third of the way down. And as the, the air bubbles expand, they rise, they create a vacuum, and that's the transport mechanism. And so when you see the before and after, it's a really light touch. You basically see a, a pair of uh, tracks that have run through. And it's a whole lot better. And, and of course, one of the, the tremendous advantages, like I said at the outset, you know, there's not much biomass down there. There's no plants, and most of the, the fauna is bacteria living in the sediment. It doesn't mean we'll have no impact, and let's face it, there is no such thing as a zero impact extractive industry. But what we can do is we can measure our impacts at every level. Hmm. And, you know, on every front, we can compress those impacts, and we've, we've, if you go to our website, you'll find a lot of peer-reviewed research you, we're about to launch a life cycle analysis that was completed by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, where they looked at a whole set of impacts from CO2 emissions, uh, sequestered carbon impacts, water usage, you know, all of the impacts on biodiversity. And we compress those impacts by up to 100%. But huh. in the case of CO2, you know, you'll generate 90% less CO2 when you build a battery cathode with our nodules compared to the land-based alternatives. And that article appeared in um, the Journal of Cleaner Production a couple of years ago. So there's a tremendous supportive case around this resource. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds like it. And it, it seems like that that's a, a very nice solution to removing that significant impact of, of going and mining. Because I think that's the that's the side that we don't talk about all that much when it comes to the energy transition is that right now we have multiple extractive industries and 
if we're going to keep using the same amount of power, presumably we're going to need to continue extracting the same amount until, to your point, we get to a fully circular economy. Mm. And, and right now, we could potentially argue that we have less extraction because hydrocarbons are so energy dense. Whereas when we're pulling out minerals from the ground, we have to condense those into batteries, which means you have a lot, as you point out, a lot of waste Indeed. just to get those minerals. And, and it's getting worse because, of course, on land, the good stuff gets mined first. And so last year, the average grade of copper that was mined was less than half of 1%. So that means, let's just think about that for a second. You've got to, when you find the deposit, you've got to clear away everything that's above, trees, got to remove all the soil, and then you get to the metal-bearing ore, and you're looking to recover a half of 1% of that. So it's no wonder that there's 190 billion tons of waste a year for the mining industry. Mm-hmm. And you compare that with us, we use 100% of the mass of our nodules. 100%. Yep. So you've got this, you've got a nodule here with you. It, to me, it, it kind of looks like a charcoal briquette. Mm-hmm. So you've got this little thing that looks like a piece of charcoal, but 100% useful critical minerals. Now, I want to go back to the size here. One piece of charcoal. Mm. How long does it take to actually get a sizable, usable amount of this when you're sending a robot down to the ocean bottom to then go and pick these up one by one? Mm. Well, think of it as harvesting a paddock of wheat. And so our collector moves along the seafloor and the trial we just completed was, was with our demonstration model and we we were achieving 80 to 90 tons, I think it was 86 tons of nodule collection an hour. But our production system will be bigger than that. And so, um, and as I mentioned, you know, you move along, I mean, some of these runs will run for 70, 100 miles. You know, Hmm. they're big flat fields down there and you'll go down and turn around and come back. Wow. And how does that compare to a traditional mining operation? Just on a similar run or a similar like per year how much are you projecting you're going to be pulling out of the ground or really pulling off the top of the ocean floor mm. versus how much a, a typical mine produces well if you look at the numbers we've released on the first block that we'll be developing we know it as nori area d we're aiming to produce 120,000 tons of nickel a year, 120,000 tons, 125, I think. And, but at the same time, we'll produce about 90,000 tons of copper, about 10,000 tons of cobalt, and almost 3 million tons of manganese. So, and that's out of picking up about uh, 10 million tons, dry tons of nodules. Hmm. So we'll also produce some road base but it's material that can be sold into the construction industry. And, um, and a lot of that material, you know, because the products we'll produce are manganese silicate. It's a direct replacement for manganese ore, but a very attractive one. 
based on all the studies because we extract the iron out of it. And then we'll produce um, a nickel, maybe sulfate. Uh, we're talking to our customers about what form they want that in, copper cathode and a cobalt sulfate, and then a little bit of uh, converter slag or, or road base, mm. which will sell into the construction industry. Okay. So, and do you have any, any comparisons on, on what a, a traditional mine produces? Sure. I mean, if you, if you look at the nickel industry, um, literally, if you exclude Indonesia, nickel production is going down at a time when nickel demand is going through the roof. So all of the growth is coming out of Indonesia with regards mm -hmm. to nickel laterite. And so, um, but if you look at who the world's largest nickel producer is, class one nickel, um, it's Norilsk which of course is up in Siberia. It's, uh, it's an environmental disaster. It's Russian owned and controlled. Mm. And so this is where the geopolitics makes it really challenging, you know, because uh, they're Russian, but they haven't been sanctioned because the world can't do without them. But our, our goal is, our ambition is to be the world's largest supplier of nickel of manganese and cobalt and a top 10 producer of copper. Okay. That's our ambition. Okay. Now you, you mentioned the geopolitics. I want to go talk about the geopolitics a little bit. It sounds like hundred miles off the coast of Mexico. So is this considered a Mexican deposit? Are you paying concessions to Mexico or who is getting paid concessions? Well, back when I mentioned that in the 1970s, the United Nations stepped in and stopped everyone because they hadn't agreed who owned the oceans. That was agreed in UNCLOS. And what that said is that a sovereign owns everything within 12 miles of their coastline, and they have an economic right to everything within 200 miles. But beyond that, it's deemed to be everyone's or the common heritage of humankind. And the International Seabed Authority was established to govern these international waters and so we will we've applied for our exploration licenses from the international seabed authority it's made up of 167 member countries plus the european union and they are our regulator and they will also be the body that we will pay royalties to and these royalties will be substantial and they will unclos was also very clear on what that royalty rate is, and that it should neither advantage land resources over ocean or ocean over land. And so all of that is getting close to finalization now. Mm -hmm. But the royalties that are paid have to be distributed to the developing countries of the world, especially those landlocked countries that have no ocean resources themselves. So we have three access to three license areas in this part of the ocean and to be able to lay claim to an area or a license you either have to be uh, a signatory to one clause which we are not of course or a member of the international seabed authority once again we are not or you have to be sponsored by one of those members and that was a key part of UNCLOS as well they wanted to 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 find a way of allowing the developing nations of the world to participate in this new industry. And so we have three developing countries, Nauru, 
Kiribati and Tonga who sponsor our applications. And what that means for those countries is it will mean royalties. It may mean local taxes. It certainly means jobs and training opportunities and upskilling. And I think, you know, those nations, all in the Pacific Ocean in our case, who've contributed, I can safely say zero to climate change, Hmm. yet are in the front line to be impacted by climate change. And so I think it's nice that these developing countries have an opportunity to benefit by what will be one of the most important solutions to climate change. Yeah. Now let me make sure I've got this clarified and, and understood. You are sponsored by those three countries. They are all um, on the Pacific Ocean, so they are, are very aware of, of the climate impacts and are aware of, of, I guess, the ocean ecosystem. Indeed. Now, for those countries that are landlocked, do they still get royalties uh, or do they have to be sponsoring a company that would be feeding into something? The majority of the royalties that we will pay go to the ISA for distribution. A smaller royalty goes to our developing countries. The benefit for the developing countries are some of the other things, local taxation, jobs and training. But to the, and, and the proximity of Nauru, for example, has nothing to do with the fact that they sponsor. They just have to be a member of the International Seabed Authority and a signature to UNCLOS, which they are both. Okay. I understand now. So it's almost like the it's almost like there is a the larger inner seabed authority, they are getting almost almost equivalent to like taxes that then they are sharing with all of the developing nations that are part of this and then your sponsoring countries, they are getting a royalty as a true, we are bringing you in almost, almost more of like a finder's fee or a commission. Well, it's, uh, well, they, they, yes, how you described it is perfect, except for that last bit. Because ah. they have to do a lot of work as well. Mm-hmm. They have to set up their, their, um, their seabed regulatory authority. They have to come with us on this journey. You know, this isn't, just, you know, they're not a, signing the paperwork and no. washing their hands. No, that's right. And, and for those people that have never heard of Nauru, I got to tell you, they are a well-educated, proud group of people. And they have been an amazing sponsor for this project because they've had a tremendous environmental injustice served upon them as well. They, their island was once named uh, Pleasant Island by uh, Captain James Cook, who sailed past and mm. found that the people were so nice and it was a beautiful, idyllic, palm-filled environment. But some years later, it was discovered that the island had one of the richest phosphate deposits ever found. And this was a time when you know, population was growing and we were looking for fertilizer. And so the Germans, the English, the Australians, and the Kiwis came and stole it, basically and didn't pay for it, just said, hey, uh, you know, we, we need these rocks. We'll leave you some. And towards the end, they got some money out of it. But 80% of the island is uninhabitable now be- wow. because of the phosphate mining and the impacts of that. So 
you know, this has a little bit of environmental justice associated with it as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds fascinating, and it sounds like you've really thought through a lot of the different aspects and, and environmental impacts and value and how to bring the most value from it, not just for the world economy, but also having this, this humanity resource and world resource going back and, and really helping humanity and society as a whole. I'd like to think so, yes. <clears throat> so with that, I, I think that's a, a good transition point. I have these questions I always ask all of my guests, mm -hmm. and so I want to transition into those final questions. The first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? <laughs> uh, well, my partner wrote a book called The Human Project. I'd really recommend that. Um, I just finished reading Kissinger's uh, storytelling about powerful figures in his life, and I really enjoyed that. So there, there are my two books, if you allow me. All right. Yep, those sound great, and I'm going to have to add them to my list. Now, the next question is, when will we be net zero as a society? It's an ambitious goal, and I think as a society, we've got to face up to some truths, you know, and, and those truths are that, you know, we're going to have to push new frontiers. Our business case is a classic, is a classic example of that, and so I can't give you that prediction yet. I, I think we're going to need to see, we're going to need to see some common sense prevail. Hmm. Will I see it in my lifetime? I don't think so. Okay. And I'm pretty young, right? You, you yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 25, 30. Phenom started two businesses already. On to your third. <laughs> I think that's a, a, very, a very realistic and, and realistic answer because I think that's where we are now. There are these big, large, amazing, inspiring moonshot ideas, but they are just that. They are moonshots that probably have a 50-50 shot of working. And when you talk to the founders behind closed doors, they may say that like we know this is like this is a big idea. If it works, we can help save the world. But if it doesn't, like not that many people are going to be surprised. No. And you'd be surprised at how many more of those kind of conversations you can have versus the the other ones where the other side of the common sense is, oh, there, there is no climate change. There is no, no concern. We don't, we're not impacting the earth. And it's a very, it seems like it's very black and white mm -hmm. when we really do need to get to the gray, which is where there is, the gray is the common sense area where we have to understand and look at and really think about how are we going to move forward collectively? I'm sure many people will have seen that video that's been watched hundreds of millions of times now by Constantine uh, Kisson, you know, where he addresses the, uh, the Oxford crowd and he talks about uh, wokeness and he talks about the reality of climate change because, you know, it was an interesting approach he took, which uh, I must say uh, it resonated with me. 
and that is that people want to get out of poverty. Hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, the, the people that even oppose our industry, you know, and some of the anti-human crowd who say, ah, oh, look, we tried this industrial development, didn't work so well, so we should just degrowth. It's like, have you thought what degrowth does? I mean, hmm. it leads to civil unrest and war, and it's going to mean that those billions of people that are still in poverty and don't get access to the most fundamental services like electricity and running fresh water and other things that we have just come to take for granted. And of course, until we can address some of that inequality, for those people, climate change is not high on their priority list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, that's the tricky part is, is really balancing that aspect of developing nations and and people in poverty who their focus for the next day is how do I get food in my stomach? How do I drink some water? How do I drink clean water that's not going to make me sick? Yes. That is what they can see. Yes. They don't they don't have the luxury to think about even the next week or two weeks or outside of the next growing season. That's right. So it, it's almost like we have to do that. Yeah. And that is how we can show humanity. Mm. So the last question now, you actually get to ask me a question. <laughs> how do we how do we encourage people? How do we how do we find the truth and put that in the hands of people about the situation we find ourselves in? You know, what's your, uh, and I guess particularly around climate change. You know, how do we how do we get the fake news out of the system? <laughs> that <laughs> man, if I if I had an answer to that, I would I would probably be in journalism full time <laughs> because I think that education is and all all forms of education from grade school and primary school all the way through very highly technical training and then understanding the world's ecosystem, financial system, everything and how we all interact with each other. Having that constant desire and almost built in innate goal of gaining knowledge and learning and understanding is is so important. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I do this podcast is to is to bring new information to people's ears and hopefully some of it sticks but how do we get truth to to society i think that that is that is a a very hard question and i I think I'm going to have to punt on this one. I think it, it's it's important that, I mean, the thing that, for example, what I would do is I would, I would read both left-leaning, right-leaning news media outlets. I would look at the 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 ones that are that are stated to be in the middle, and then when it's something that's scientific, I would go and look at peer-reviewed papers and try and bring in academia into the conversation. Yes. And so if there is something like that, 
I could spend four to six hours or more trying to understand, okay, what was that soundbite? And what's the truth behind that soundbite? Yes. But we simply, like for so many things, do we really have time to do that? Mm. I think that's the, I think that is what I would say is that for the things that you care about and the things that you are concerned about, invest that time both in yourself and in the conversation to learn and participate and look at multiple sources. That is the most important part, I think, is not not looking at anyone because yes. nobody has it right. Yeah. I think we're all wrong in some regard yeah. for everything. Sure. So the more people that you can listen to and the more varied you can get, I think that's how you're going to get the closest to what the truth actually is. Yeah. Well, I know that was a tough question to end on, and I haven't got the answer myself either, but I, I agree. How, how can you motivate people to care enough to seek the truth? Yeah. And, and how can you penalize people that just are reckless in putting out nonsense? You know, yeah. Nonsense. It's, it's, man, there are so many examples to think about over the last years, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it's it's tough. People lying in the middle of major motorways saying stop fuel, stop fossil fuels now. It's like, come on, we gotta think this through. Just imagine <laughs> what the impact it's just not possible. Everyone's yeah. I mean people will freeze and die and, and and we all want a better, safer planet. But we gotta think it through. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And the planet's four and a half billion years old. The planet's gonna be fine. Yep. Yeah, I I have a professor who that was that was what he said. He's a he's a geochemist and his favorite thing to tell us is that the earth it has seen higher temperatures, it has seen lower temperatures, it has seen more CO2, it has seen less CO2, it has seen it has literally seen everything that has been on earth. And no matter what we do, the earth will be fine. It may become Mars, it may become Venus, it may become Earth 2.0. It's going to be fine whether we're here or not. Indeed. So understanding climate and understanding how our bodies can live in the climate, that is a human problem. It's not an Earth problem. It is very much a human-centric problem. And, And that really should be why... Everybody cares about it. Yes. It, well, if you, uh, if I may just plug TMC, where um, metals.co is our website. It's a, we've got a very rich resource library of peer-reviewed journals and content, and you know, I encourage you to come and learn. Uh, we're a NASDAQ-listed company. TMC is our ticker. You know, come and join us on the journey. All right. Well... Everybody, you heard it. That's where you can go and, and learn about the metals company. And you said it's, is it TMZ or TMZ. C? Yeah. C is in Charlie. As in the metals company. As in the company. Yeah. The metals company. Okay. Well, Jared, thank you for joining me today. And thank you for everyone for joining me on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. 
one more thing. I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.